Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. So today, I want to continue in 2 Timothy, talking about how do we learn from our Bibles together and kind of to in a way to pattern for you how you look at the scripture and how you use the tool that will make you effective in Bible study. So here's the three things that we're learning that this week we will go over in the video for how to study your Bible in the book of how to study your Bible. It's three things that are the tools. Okay, The first is observation. What do you see when you read the Bible? Then the second one is interpretation. What does it mean? And then the third one is application. How does it work? Okay, so I want you to do this with me. Okay, you ready? So we say it. Observation. Observation. What do I see? see? Interpretation. Interpretation. What does it mean? mean? Application. Application. How How does it work? Now, these three are essential for effective Bible study. The better you observe, the more correct your interpretation is. And if you don't have a correct interpretation, you'll have an illegitimate application. Now, the reason that we're we're wanting you to get in this rhythm of study is because when you're listening to preaching, you're primarily hearing application. Because if you listen to, to famous preachers on social media, television, whatever, podcasts, you will hear them applying the word, but you won't hear how they observed, and you won't usually hear how they interpret it. So they will give you an application, but you won't know where'd you get that from, or how did you get that. And so for you and I to be really grounded in God's word, we have to begin to have firsthand knowledge of the word. You will not know if an application is legitimate if you have not observed and if you have not interpreted. So our passage today, and we're going to use this form today as I go through this passage with you, we're going to look at things we observe, we're going to see what they mean, and then we're going to apply them to our lives. And so we're going to look at chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7 again. I like it when you read with me, and as you read, I'm asking you to see. To look and see what's there. So will you read with me? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. (laughs) Self-control. Different version. So as we look at this text, 
And when we start to say, let's observe, let's see what's there, one of the things that you need to do is you need to observe the context. In other words, the historical background. Why is this letter written? What was its purpose? What was the timing of it? And so Lisa alluded to some of these things, but I want to go over them in a little more depth with you. So 2 Timothy is the second letter that Paul wrote to his beloved disciple, Timothy. But why this letter is so weighty is these are the last recorded words of Paul. Tradition tells us that soon after he wrote this letter, he was taken out in Rome to the Ostian Way and he was beheaded. So these are his last words, in a sense, and last words tend to have great weight. It's a very different mood than the first letter. When Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, though he was a prisoner, his imprisonment was completely different. He had his own house. Though he was chained to a Roman guard, he had his friends around him. He had co-workers who lived with him. He could come and go. He had a hopeful sense, as he wrote the first letter, that he would soon be released. And then in the second letter, it takes about four or five years later when this letter is written. And in the meantime, many things have happened. First, Paul does get released from his imprisonment, and he begins to travel. The, the, the bucket list, or the, the mission that Paul always had, was to extend the kingdom of God to the borders of the Roman Empire. He wanted to go to Spain, and historians say that he made it to Spain that he established a church in Spain. Some even say that he got to go as far as Britain, that he was establishing churches in, in, in Britain even in this period of time. But he returns from the west, comes back to the east, and retraces some of the churches that he started. He has taken two fellow workers with him, Titus and Timothy. As he returns to Crete, there's a flourishing church there, and he puts Titus in charge of that new church. He goes back to Ephesus, which is a church in which Paul has given his heart. He's, living, he's lived there for three years. Some say that he has preached 2,000 hours of sermons in Ephesus. Now I do that in one Sunday, but uh, <laughs> some of you tell me it feels like that, but... Uh, you know, but Ephesus is, is where Paul has, has really poured out his life and his heart, and he places Timothy as the pastor of the Ephesus church. So the work that he has begun, he has now entrusted to Timothy to continue that good work. He goes to Macedonia, uh, some of the historians say. He goes to the city of Troas, and there in that city, he begins to experience a new level of persecution. So Nero is Caesar. He's the emperor of the Roman Empire. A terrible fire ravages Rome. Nero decides that he will blame the Christians for the fire. And so the Christians began to experience a level of persecution like never before. It's said that Nero would take Christians, put them as torches in his garden to light up his parties setting them on fire. He would throw them to the lions in the arena. He would make them fight against gladiators. He would do these things of making the Christians scapegoats because 
of uh, different practices of Christianity. For example, the Romans saw the Lord's Supper as a cannibalistic act. They called Christians cannibals, eaters of flesh, because they were eating the body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. They also saw Christians as atheists because they were a, a multi-theistic or a multi-God society. To have a single God in their mind was to be an atheist. And above all else that caused them such concern is that Christians would never bow to the ultimate authority of Caesar. They always reserved the ultimate authority for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the chief of the troublemakers among the Christians was the Apostle Paul. As an apostle to the Gentiles, as an effective evangelist, church planter, Paul had to be stopped. He was seen as an enemy of the emperor. And so he was taken again into prison, and this time Paul knows he will never be released. He writes, at the end of his life is at hand, he says, the time of my departure has come, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. As he writes the second letter to Timothy, he is certain that his life is at an end. Now, that's important context. It's important context because, in many ways, your last words are your most weighty words. But even more than that, it's not just how much he loves Timothy, it's how much he's entrusting Timothy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is looking to Timothy that he will invest this profitable word of God into him so that Timothy will live a profitable life. That Timothy will rise up to a new level of leadership, a new level of anointing, a new level of gifting, because Paul's not going to be there anymore. And Timothy's going to have to begin to lead the movement. And so Paul writes to him these things. You see, Lisa made it clear to you that every word of God that is written in the Scripture is God-breathed. God has breathed out His Word. That the Bible itself is a miracle that you can hold in your hand. But here's the question. Are you letting it be profitable in you? Because the investment of God is there, but there has to be a certain heart in you that allows the investment to come in and make you profitable. Are you a profitable servant of Christ? Now, I like that term. I like that designation, servant of Christ. I like it in this way. If you know that your identity is established, if you know that your status is settled, then you don't need a title. You just need to serve. See, if, if you know that you have received an identity from God, that, that you're a son of the Most High God, that you're a daughter of the Most High God, and if you have received that and you recognize it's received, not achieved, it's, it's by relationship, not by behavior, and you begin to realize this is who I am because this is who God says I am. And then you realize that when you were born again, you were, you were spoken to by the Holy Spirit who cried in you, Abba, Father. Then your spirit responded to the Holy Spirit and you cried, Jesus' Father is my Father. Then your status is settled. The world didn't give it to you and the world can't take it away. 
Then you see, if you know you're a child of God and you know that you have the status of the firstborn of the sons of God, you recognize that's who you are. It doesn't have anything to do with your gender. It doesn't have to do with your education. It doesn't have to do with your culture. It has everything to do with you are who you are because you are in Christ. Then you can say, well, I'm going to serve. Because you're not serving to be approved. You're serving because you're already approved. Paul, every time he writes a letter, talks about being a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He knows he's a son of the Most High God. He knows that he has a settled status in the kingdom of God. He knows that. But when he talks about himself, he says, I'm a bondservant. And I love that picture because in that picture, you, you, you get what he means by this. Now, look, that, that, those of you who have tattoos and piercings, you can have them. I'm not going to do it. I have a real low pain threshold. I don't want any, I mean, you know, I'm just not going there, okay? All right? And I know you can have all mine. You can have, your body can have mine. That's fine. But when I hear Paul say, I'm a bondservant, here's what he means by that. You see, he's been set free from slavery. But what he has chosen is to willingly bind himself to his master. And he takes it ear and he says pierce my ear so everyone will know that I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ there's a mark on him there's a visible mark on him that says I have willingly bound my life to my master you see once you know your status you can bind yourself to the master Once you know your identity and you no longer have to seek approval, but you know you have approval, it becomes the most beautiful term that you can say about yourself, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're going to be a servant, you better be profitable. Are you hearing me? You guys are really quiet. There's a lot of you and you're hardly even talking to me. Are you seeing it? Are you feeling it? Because you've got to feel it. You see, because nobody can pierce your ear for him unless you're willing. And it's only when you say, this is who I am. And this is how I want to live. I want to be profitable for the Lord. You know, there's an old uh, writer. It's, it goes back to the Civil War even. He wrote this. He said, God doesn't need better methods. Men and women are always God's methods. So in a way, he needs profitable men and profitable women. And that's what Paul is saying. Timothy, are you going to be profitable? Are you you going to receive this final investment that I'm about to give you? And so what I want to do is as we look at this scripture, we observe there are marks here of what makes a profitable servant. And When we observe and when we begin to interpret, you begin to see something of key terms here. And anytime you read your Bible and you see something repeated, it's repeated with purpose. And the repetition means it's emphasized. So one of the repetitions here is he says, remember and remind. See, those are words where he's calling back to something that is foundational 
a mark of a true servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, remember, and I remind you. So in other words, for you to go to the next level, there has to be a foundation that has been built up from the past. Before he can give you new assignments, you have to have a foundation upon which he can build the profitability here. And so the first of the remembrances, and even it's a powerful one where Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.4, he says, As I remember your tears, I long night and day to see you that I may be filled with joy. So here's what that means. This is how we interpret it. Paul, when he was ripped out of his home, taken away by Roman soldiers, the scripture says he didn't even get to take his clothes or his things or his papers or anything with him. But his last view as he was being taken away were the tears of his beloved disciple. Timothy wept at the loss of his spiritual father, Paul. And as Paul was alone in this dark and this dank prison, which still exists today, and you can go and visit it in Rome, it's, it's by a river, it's, it's, it's a prison that has only like an opening for light. It was, it was very, very trying and grievous place to live. And he's writing to Timothy, and in this place where he has no friends with him and no co-workers and no freedom whatsoever, he's reminded of how much Timothy loved him. And as you apply what's being shown here, as Timothy watched his friend being dragged off to jail, Paul is basically saying, I can't forget that. Every time I think of you, Timothy, I see the tears running down your face, and it makes me pray for you. See, if you want to apply this to your life and to my life, here's what Paul is saying. If you have a hardened heart that can't cry, you can't receive love. See, if you don't care enough to cry, then you can't be penetrated with grace and love and joy and peace. Now, no one gets to that hardness of heart without having been hurt. No one gets to a hardness of heart without having fear in their life. No one gets to a hardness of heart without having disappointment. But here he's saying, Timothy, you loved me enough, you cared for me enough, that losing me made you weep. See, if you care for something enough, you're vulnerable. If you love someone enough, they can disappoint you. If you make yourself open, it's possible you're going to be betrayed. And what Paul is saying is you have to face that possibility and you have to love anyway. And you have to be willing to experience loss because God wants you to have a soft and tender heart. And what you and I do intuitively is we harden our hearts so that we don't have to feel pain. As a matter of fact, many of us hate disappointment so much, we would rather not want something, or at least not acknowledge we want something, unless we know for certain that we're going to get it. Some of us position ourselves in such a way that we think we can get enough leverage that no one can ever say no to us. It's funny how God doesn't play that game with you. Please hear me. 
Paul is saying that the mark of one who is going to be a profitable servant of the Lord has a tender heart, has a softness, has an openness that cares enough to cry. Now, why is that so important? Why is this not just sentimentality? Well, let me tell you, we live in a hardened-hearted society. And one of the things that, that has really helped me understand this, I was listening to a speech, and, and this speech maker was saying this, the problem that we have in our society is what psychologists call contempt. In the words of the 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. We treat each other as worthless, which is why our fights are so bitter and cooperation feels nearly impossible. See, this is application we're talking about. If, if the call of God on your heart is to be tender, if the call of God on your heart is to be open, is to care enough to cry, then this protection of the heart that we use called contempt will keep us from being profitable servants of the Lord. Now, it is so powerful, this, this protectiveness of contempt, that it destroys relationships. And one of the places where it's most seen is in marriage. So here's one of the, the, the leading experts on marriage who studied over a thousand couples, thousands of couples, and this expert, this is a, a secular expert on marriage, he said, after watching a couple interact for about an hour, he can predict with 94% accuracy whether the couple will divorce within three years. So everybody should go to this guy. <laughs> uh, you don't have a chance, you might as well not get married, you know, kind of a thing. And it would only take you an hour to figure it out, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Save you years of trouble. But here's what he says. It's not their anger. He says this, the biggest warning signs are indicators of contempt. These include cutting sarcasm. Again, this is kind of nonverbal communication. Sneering. Hostile humor. And worst of all, eye rolling. Some of you are showing me contempt right now. <laughs> Why are those symptoms so important? Why does he say this is a problem? He says because they're indicators of an inner contempt. In other words, think about this with me. These little acts effectively say you are worthless to the very person a spouse should love more than any other. You want to see if a couple will end up in a, in a divorce court? Watch them discuss a contentious topic and see if either partner rolls his or her eyes. Now here's the, are you tracking with me on this? This is important. Here's the thing. You may not want to treat someone as worthless. But what he's saying is, it has become a habit with us. It is how we defend ourselves. It is how we, in our own feelings of worthlessness, will try to control you because you feel like you have more power than me. 
So I use nonverbal, I use passive aggressive, I use eye rolling to show you you're not getting to me. But what happens then is you're not getting to me. In other words, I will never let you have my heart. No matter how much I say I care, I'm not going to cry for you. And so the issue then becomes if you're a Christian and Jesus has said, love your neighbor, love your brother, and then he says, love even your enemy. You see, you can't love someone you treat as worthless. If you treat them and and believe they are worthless, or you act towards them as if they are worthless, then you are anything but a mark that Paul says is to be remembered. I remember your tears. Second mark. So, you're like, I wish I hadn't come today. (laughs) So the second mark is this. It's in 2 Timothy 1, 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Now, again, when we observe, we try to observe things in this that are unique, things that stand out. Well, the word faith is obviously one of the key words in every book of the Bible, but what stands out is this adjective, this descriptor that is translated sincere, And what we see is that Paul was instrumental in leading Timothy to faith. When Paul went to Lystra, Timothy's hometown, Timothy received the gift of life in eternal life in Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying here that is is so powerful is he uses a word that means anti-hypocritical. So even though it says sincere, which is a translation of it, really what he's saying is you are not a hypocrite. And, and what Paul is referring to, because the word hypocrite in the Greek culture had to do with theater. It had to do with the stage. So an actor was a hypocrite because the actor would not put on makeup and stuff. The actor would put on a mask. And when the mask was on, the actor would play a role. And so what Paul is saying, Timothy, you have a faith that doesn't have a mask. Timothy, you have a faith and you're not play acting. Do you see how important this is? It is such an essential thing that you realize nobody can invest in you in your mask. God cannot pour his love into your mask. He can only pour his love into your anti-hypocritical faith, not into your hypocritical faith. It's only when you stop play acting that he can invest his love and you can become profitable. Again, friends, it is intuitive on our part to be hypocrites. It is intuitive on our part to figure out the mask that works best and play the role. This happens in everybody. It starts when you're very young. One of the the really powerful illustrations for me, was when I was teaching school. I, I was planting a church in Atlanta, and, and I was teaching school as a long-term sub in an at-risk high school, and I was teaching Spanish. And I had, um, because I was a long-term sub, all the teachers gave me all the worst students in the school. <laughs> and I had what was called a block schedule, and so I had them for hours and hours of hell. 
And, and one of the things that was, that was so interesting to me is these kids had never been invested in. They had been socially promoted. They just got pushed up, pushed up, pushed up. And they came up into the ninth and 10th grades, and they were trying to learn academic Spanish when they had never learned what a noun or a verb or any kind of even English vocabulary and how it worked. And so they were totally and completely lost. And the system didn't in any way make for enough time or enough uh, attention to give each one individualized attention and help them catch up. But here's what I saw. These kids were smart. These kids were talented. They didn't have the framework, but they had a potential that was being untapped. And there was a brokenheartedness in me because I could see who they could be. But here's what they did. They were intuitive with the mask. They knew that to look stupid and foolish would not make them look cool. So they put on the mask of rebellious, of disobedient, of troublemaker, because then they could at least look strong and they could look cool. They didn't want to look like they were ignorant. They wanted to look like they were tough. And what they did is they put on the mask of toughness. And that's what we do. Because we don't know how to survive without a mask. We don't know how people will respond to us unless we play our role. Think about in your family, whatever your role is, even when you go back and you're an old person, they still make you play the role. That's why Thanksgiving is so much fun. (laughs) Right? So here is what Paul is saying to Timothy. And here is what God is breathing to you. Take the mask off so I can invest my love in you. See, he cannot invest in your play acting. He cannot give resources to your mask. An investment of love will never penetrate the mask you use to protect yourself. So the mark of the believer is an anti-hypocritical faith. The word A in Greek means not. Not hypocritical faith. Are you tracking with me on this? You're like, yeah, but I don't like it. (laughs) So the third mark we see as we understand what it is to serve Christ in a profitable way. Paul says here, I remind you. You see, he does it three times. Remember, I remind. I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. And so what Paul is talking about here and what this means, you know, we go from observing to interpretation here, and it, is that when Timothy came to Christ, there was a prophetic utterance over this young man's life. Timothy was probably 30 to 35 years old, somewhere in his early 30s. He was young in that society and young for leadership, but he had been set apart by a prophetic utterance that said, this young man will be greatly used of God. And then Paul is in this verse reminding Timothy that not only had there been this designation by the Holy Spirit that he would be greatly used by God, but Paul himself had laid hands on Timothy. And as he prayed, he imparted to Timothy a spiritual gift. And it was a spiritual gift of such significance that Paul is saying, you and I were there, this happened, you need to remember this. 
And so when we look at this and we start to think, how does this apply to us? Well, Paul's really giving you a pattern for how the Holy Spirit works in the life of every believer. All our spiritual gifts that come to us, come to us not apart from the Holy Spirit, but because you have the Holy Spirit, He has the gifts. He doesn't just give the gifts and see what you'll do with it. He gives Himself, and then He releases the gifts. And Paul says every believer has spiritual gifts. Can you imagine what a waste of your life it would be to have spiritual gifts that you never use? Or that you use some, but you put them aside. And, and, and this is such an interesting thing. The, the literal way that verse 7 reads is, is very powerful. He has given you a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. You see, you get to decide what spirit you live by. So you've been given the Holy Spirit. Your spirit is now alive in union with the Holy Spirit. You have the wind of the Spirit in your life. There are gifts that are there because He's present. But can you imagine living your life without those gifts? You can't live a profitable life. You can't live to your potential without living beyond your own gifting and into the gifts the Spirit has for you. But in order to do that, you have to begin to activate them by faith. They're yours, but you have to live in them. You have to recognize them. You have to develop them. You have to deploy them. And I love how Paul speaks this to Timothy. I mean, in a way, he's, he's basically saying, rekindle, stir up, like you would stir up the embers of a fire that is about to go out. The gift that is in you, which was given to you by the Holy Spirit. See, every time Paul thinks about what happened with Timothy, he thinks about this latent gifting. And he wants Timothy to stir it up. But, but I, I think once you observe this and you start interpreting this, you need to go a little further with this. Notice how Paul says, the gift I laid hands on you. See, there's this thing about Paul that should be true of you. He has 100% humility. He does not believe that anything that he does or anything that he accomplishes, he has accomplished in his own strength. He believes that everything he has, he has received. But because he has received it and he has total humility about it, he has total confidence in it. See, a lot of us, we think that humility leads to insecurity or false modesty. Oh, you know, nothing ever happens to me. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm all that. Tell me, let me just tell you, that's not humility. That's presumption. That's arrogance. That's saying, I'm nobody or nothing, but Christ says you're everything to him. And so if you haven't come to the place where you say, no, you know, I'm not... I'm not a nobody. I'm a child of God. I'm not a nobody. I've been adopted by the Father. The Holy Spirit in me says the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is my Father. And if I'm calling myself nothing, then they are nothing too. But you see, once you settle that and you go, this is who I am. I didn't, I didn't earn this. I didn't deserve this. I just received this. That's humility. 
Humility is confidence properly placed. And once your humility is in place, your confidence is in place. And you begin to say, hey, whatever God has asked me to do, I do. And the results are up to him, but there will be results. And so listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, do you not know who laid hands on you? It was me. And you know who I am? I'm the Apostle Paul. You understand? Who put you in Ephesus? It was me. Who laid hands on you and gave you that? And and that gift was imparted? It was me. So he's saying, look, I have confidence this is God. You need to have at least confidence in me that it's God. And now you need to walk in confidence. I like this. You understand? You and I need things that we say, okay, I am confident of this. Because if you're not confident, you're insecure. And if you're insecure, you're dangerous to you and me. Because you're going to make everything about you. Oh, you know, should I do this? Is this God speaking? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You are called to have confidence in the gifts that God has given you. You are called to walk with assurance. You are called to walk believing that every step you take, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but you have a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So I'm asking you today, you may not know you have gifts, but every Christian has gifts. Because every Christian has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is where He's present, the gifts are present. But here's the funny thing about that. The gifts are always to serve. So again, you've got to have your status settled. You've got to have your identity settled. But a lot of people don't. They use their gifts to verify or authenticate their worth. I've actually had people come up to me and say, well, I'm going to leave this church. I'm like, okay. And I, They want me to ask why, but I won't. <laughs> Let me just tell you, I never ask you why you leave. I just bless you. All right? If you leave, see ya. Amen. So they got to tell me why, though, all right? They always have to. So you go, well, I just want you to know why. And I go, all right. They go, they go my gifts were not recognized here. You know what they're saying, right? Do you begin to understand? Hopefully, you're getting some discernment to understand. What they said is, I didn't come here to serve. I came here to be served. I came here expecting you would make a platform for me, and you would give a group to me, and you would make a way for me to be successful. But they didn't come to serve. They came to be served. And since we're not, and usually the people who say that want to preach, teach, or counsel, or whatever it might be. And so you say to them, hey, you know what? We've got a third grade class that's busting with kids. Why don't you teach there? Oh, no, that's not my gift. I only have a gift for teaching adults. Come on, are you hearing me? See, people who have decided this is my gift, it's probably not their gift. At least it's not a gift to us. Because you see, if you serve, the gifts manifest. 
And if you serve people, people will recognize your gifts. Because you're serving. And in that service, they will see the spirit. That's not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And wherever you are serving, you will be recognized. And you won't have to say, hey, they're not letting me do my gifts. Because you're seeing a need and you're serving that need. And the spirit will give you the gifts to meet that need. And guess what? If you are faithful with one gift, he'll give you more. And he'll raise you up. But you have to humble yourself in order to be exalted. And some people want to be exalted and act like they're humble. You see, the minute I say to you, I just want you to see my humility, you're seeing I have no humility. (laughs) So Paul here has utter confidence. And he's saying to Timothy, and Timothy probably was an introvert. That's, that's what we're seeing. You know, he had, he had stomach problems. He had stress. He had tension. He, he was fearful. You see all these things. He was not in temperament like Paul. But Paul said, do you not remember? We called you into this. And the call qualifies you for this. And we imparted to you the gift for this. This gift is not limited by your personality. This gift is not limited by your age. This is the gift of God. And I was the one who laid hands. And you can't forget that that happened. He said, you're letting that flame go out. So what we have here is we have Paul talking about a man who has a heart that cries because he cares. Who has a heart that isn't a mask. But because it's not a mask, his fears have come up. His introversion has come up. His limitations have come up. And Paul says, look, you're not to operate in your own flesh. You're to operate in the spirit. You're to operate in the gifts. And I call you to that as well. Listen to me. These three marks, they need to be there in your life. There needs to be a tenderness of heart. If you are an eye roller, you need to break that habit. There needs to be in you a laying down of whatever mask you put up for however long you've put it up. And it may be scary, but God will not invest in your mask. And then you've got to realize if you are in Christ... You have His Spirit. You have the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ has every gift you need to accomplish every work that He's assigned you. You're not called to lead or to rule. You're called to serve. And as you serve, guess what happens? People will recognize your gifts. There's one more thing in this text that's unusual. The way he starts it, he says grace, mercy, and peace. Usually he only says grace and peace. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons why he did that, and he might have just decided to do it. I don't know. But the Spirit has given me at least a picture, at least for me, to apply that. All right, so let's think through the three real quickly. Peace is an inner calm. It's not a peace that comes from your personality. It's not a peace of passivity. It's that circumstances are not the source of your calm. 
You have an instinctive inner calm. You have an equilibrium that comes from heaven, not from earth. Because it's not your peace, it's the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. That's what you have as you walk even into fearful circumstances. Even if there are, like Timothy, people are saying you're too young, you're not gifted enough, you're not talented enough, you have a peace that says this peace is the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. It is not about my circumstances or who's attacking me, it's who I'm connected to and I'm connected to Jesus. But the other one is grace. You see, I, don't, I, I believe when you really get it that everything is grace and everything is a gift. In other words, everything you really do that matters is a gift from God. It's the favor of God. It's God moving before you and you just responding to God. I think it makes you want to just give everything to ministry and everything to God and say, I'm going to take risk. I'm going to move out. I, you know, there's nothing to lose. There's nothing to prove and there's nothing to fear. That's what grace does to a person. When you realize it's not about how good I am at things or how uh, experienced I am, but I'm going to move in the spirit. I'm going to move in faith. That's grace. And you say, he's going to supply me at every step of the way. Every vision he gives me, he's going to have provision because that's his grace. So I get grace and I get peace, but I also get mercy because here's what I find. When I go all out for Jesus, there's still a lot of stupid in me. I have said, this is God, and it wasn't God. I have said, he's going to do this. He didn't do that. You know, I've said, oh, you know, I thought it was God, but it was really the spaghetti I ate last night, you know? And so there's grace, and there's peace, and then there's mercy. You see, you're covered either way. See, the grace gives you the risk-taking faith to say, I'm all in. And then the mercy says, even if I fail, it's okay. Because mercy means you don't get what you do deserve. In other words, he limits even how bad you can mess up. Because, friends, a steering wheel is irrelevant on a parked car. You only can steer something that's moving. Now, I prefer to only make the mistake once, that I learn from it, that I debrief it, and that I don't do it again. But I have not found that I can get where God wants me to go without making mistakes. His grace moves me. His mercy protects me. And His peace keeps me calm in the journey. Will you stand with me? Are you, are you with me in this? Because you look tired and I did all the work. Would you close your eyes? Here. Before you right now is the altar of God. I, I know this might be strange, but prophetically... In the Spirit, I see the, the Lord coming right before you and saying, will you lay these things on the altar for me? Whatever you've used to protect your heart, whatever contempt or hardness of heart, would you put it on the altar right now? Would you offer it to Jesus? Because He can't invest in the hardness. He can only invest in the tenderness. If you won't care, 
then you won't value what He's doing. Would you let that tenderness of God come and tenderize your heart right now? You may think, I need to protect myself, but God is saying, I will be your protection. I will be your grace, your mercy, and your peace. But you've got to open up right now. So would you lay the contempt on the altar, the eye rolling, the sneering, the passive aggressive, would you lay it on the altar and say, Lord, my heart is yours. I will care enough to cry. And then that altar's there for your mask. Whatever mask that is, maybe you're the good girl, maybe you're the good boy, maybe you're the one who always does the responsible thing, or maybe you're like those kids, you're the rebel because you don't want anybody to see how broken you really are. Would you lay the mask on the altar? Would you offer it to God? Only He can really take it and make you safe enough that you say, Lord, here I am, unmasked. And then, I want you to realize, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual gifts. You need to not only believe in humility that you have received, but now you need to move in confidence. So, wherever you're fearful, wherever you're insecure, would you lay it on the altar? Would you lay it on the altar? And would you say this with me, if this is making sense to you, would you say this with me? I choose to walk in grace. No more fear. Nothing to prove. Nothing to lose. I choose to walk in the mercy of God. To live in the instinct of peace. Inner calm. Equilibrium peace that passes all understanding. Take that. Receive it right now. Grace, mercy, peace. This is, this is what covers you. As you open up and have a tender heart, as you lay down your mask, as you walk in your gifting, His mercy, His grace, His peace will follow you all the days of your life. We seal this now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.